right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. My name is Kevin Foss, and I'm the host of the show. Um, I'm a licensed clinician specializing in the treatment of OCD and anxiety spectrum disorders, and uh, I really appreciate all of you for joining me for this episode today. So very typically, as you all know, this is a question and answer based podcast. You can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and go to the submit a question link, and you can send me a question for the podcast, and I will answer that question. I will likely answer that question on a future episode. And um, uh, if you... uh, you can also, by the way, go check me out over at Fearcast Podcast on Instagram. Uh, I post things every now and again, and uh, you can also send me messages over there if you'd like. Um, also, please remember that you can certainly send me a message via uh, via email at questions at fearcastpodcast.com. And uh, it's best to send them through or best to send audio questions in that way. So you can record your question with your voice and send it to me at questions at fearcastpodcast.com. Or you can send me the shared Google drive of that uploaded audio and you can send that uh, send the link over at uh, the the submit a question link at fearcastpodcast.com and uh, I'll get those and I'll shoot those up to the top of the list and and I'll tell you I I've I've really liked having those audio uh, those audio questions again I think it's so much more interesting to hear your question in your voice typically uh, I I will read them and I'll try to pull out the inflection or try to figure out how uh, you know what emphasis you're you're placing on it but um, I think having your voice on it actually has a, a lot more meaning. Um, and, uh, I, and again, I, I'll be posting those questions or, or, or posting those answers to those questions in future episodes. Um, but today, I'm going to be going over uh, harm OCD. I realized that um, it's been a while since I've done a large episode on a single uh, subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder. And I thought that uh, now would be the time to do one on harm OCD. I, I, was, I was looking back at all the previous um, episodes and just went, gosh, I have haven't done one for this. I've done one for existential. I've done one for uh, HOCD or sexual orientation OCD. I've done one for a bunch of things, and but I realized one of the uh, the central ones I haven't done is is harm OCD. So um, I, I thought that's uh, that's something I ought to do. So um, so today for this episode, I, I don't have any I don't have any questions for it. I don't have any listener questions for it. But I'm just going to be going over what this subtype is. What are some common obsessions that come with it? What are some common compulsions that you can see? What is uh, how does uh, how does OCD work? Maybe you're listening to this and you're brand new. To to the world of OCD, and you've kind of went, man. I've, I kind of have these scary, violent thoughts, and I wonder what that says about me. And um, you're trying to do some avoidances and some reassurances, and it just nothing's working. Uh, and and uh, and thankfully, you found this episode, and hopefully, there's going to be some information in here that will give you some information or that will give you some guidance on on what you can do, what this is, what this isn't, um, and uh, hopefully, it can point you in the right direction for uh, for getting that help that uh, that you that you're looking for. So in addition to talking about what it is, I'm going to be talking about what treatment looks like. I'm going to be talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, um, a little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of exposure. And at the very end of the episode, I'm going to be adding two different exposure examples that you can consider. Um, one, I'm going to be doing a guided meditation. I did a guided meditation on the HOCD episode, and I think that's been uh, popular and uh, appreciated by a lot of folks. So I want to do another one. Um, and uh, I'm also going to be doing an example 
example script up there uh, so you can hear me talk about what a script could look like. Now, I'm going to say in advance for anybody listening to this, if, if you're not ready for a script or if you're not ready to do exposures and it's just going to be too much anxiety at this time, um, I... I uh, uh, Take a break on it. So in other words, um, I'll notify you when we're going to get into it. And if it feels like you're just not quite ready for it, that's totally fine. You can skip past it, fast forward through it. Or you can go and listen to that with your therapist or with a trusted friend uh, so they can be with you as you expose yourself to this. Um, it's not going to be anything too Olympic level in it, but, um, but you know, exposures, if you're new to this, can be difficult. And um, uh, so I just want to put that little bit of a disclaimer on that. But again, I'll, I'll warn you guys before I get into it so you're not going to be caught off guard for those who need it. Um, but uh, if, if you would like to listen to it and follow through it or, or or listen to the example of it and, and apply it and, and figure out how to apply them for yourself and to write one yourself. That'd be great. Remember, all of this is just for educational purposes. This certainly isn't me doing therapy, but uh, is, is giving you information about what treatment looks like, giving you some examples of what treatment could look like so that you can uh, be informed about what you could get into either with your own therapist um, or, through, or through a book or through just kind of a, a self-guided um, self process. So again, I, I really appreciate everybody for joining me for this episode, and uh, hopefully it's not going to be too long, but uh, hopefully it's going to be uh, just as long as it needs to be. So why don't we just jump right into it? So the first thing I wanted to say about harm OCD, so first, uh, well, I should say this, harm OCD, as I mentioned before, is a subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder. Harm OCD is not a diagnosis unto itself. It is just a colloquial subtitle that we in the OCD community are going to use to as kind of shorthand of what, what you're experiencing, the types of thoughts you may be experiencing, the types of uh, compulsions you might be doing or why you might be doing them. And uh, it, it, it just kind of brings us to the topic at hand. Um, but again, it, harm OCD is not different than other types of OCD other than just the theme. The same tools and techniques that we've been talking about on the other episodes, generally speaking, very generally speaking, will apply here. It's just a matter of trying to work it into your own constellation of fears. Um, no subtype is worse than any others. No subtype uh, implies that someone uh, is more dangerous or violent or uh, awful or uh, uh, degenerative than any others. They're just thoughts. We're going to get into that uh, as we go on. But, but to that point, I should also say, um, violent thoughts are very, very normal. Oh, I'm giving you guys some reassurances right from the top. Um, hopefully, those will calm it down as we progress. But um, just know that before we even just get into this, violent thoughts, having dangerous kind of scary imagery or um, a, a kind of verbiage in our minds, in, in our mind or uh, th things of that nature, they're, they're very normal. People will sometimes have these, these thoughts that pop up in mind that are violent or dangerous or uncomfortable, um, and they can show up in very surprising ways, um, surprising in when they show up, how they show up, the degree to which they show up, um, and they can be harming somebody else. It can be harming somebody existentially. It can even be harming oneself, and all these things are all very common. In fact, here's a, a statistic I found in this was 
It claimed that 85% of non-OCD folks acknowledge having violent thoughts. So that means people who are not diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder said that they do, in fact, notice that they sometimes have violent thoughts. Now, we'll say to that, I think that is, an, uh, that is a low number. So I think that's underreported. Sometimes what happens is if you, uh, uh, I, I think, in other words, I think that there's, uh, I think there's another 15% running around out there who's scared to share their thoughts because they might have this uh, false belief that violent people have violent thoughts. Now, I, I can say, sure, violent people have violent thoughts, but nonviolent people have violent thoughts. People have violent thoughts because they're thoughts. So I, I think there's, a, again, a 15% of people running around out there who are uh, pretending as if they don't have violent thoughts. And in reality, we, we all do sometimes, but that's, but that's okay. Not all of us act on them. And we all continue to live and survive and interact, et cetera, et cetera, have relationships and not follow through on those thoughts, like a lot of the other thoughts we have, but, but I, I, I perhaps get in, get, getting ahead of myself. So before we jump into it, let's talk about what OCD is. So uh, OCD is short for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. Uh, it is an anxiety disorder marked by uh, the presence of unwanted intrusive thoughts, feelings, images, sensations, or urges that generally speaking cause someone to feel anxiety. And Sometimes it's not just anxiety. It can be it can be nervousness. It can be uh, sadness. It can be emptiness. Sometimes people have a lot of different emotional responses to it. But generally speaking, they respond with anxiety and fear as a result of those intrusive thoughts. Now, I call those intrusive thoughts feared stories. It's because what's happening is your your brain, for whatever reason, saw something, uh, uh, conjured up a memory, combined a bunch of different things in your mind, and gave you this thought. Now, I don't spend a ton of time trying to figure out exactly where that thought came from. Sometimes we just get thoughts. Sometimes it's triggered by something. Either way, a thought popped up in our head. And our brain kind of then told us a story about what that thought meant, because the thoughts in and of themselves are, are, are pretty neutral, meaning that they're not inherently good, nor bad, nor safe, nor dangerous. It's just, it's, it's a thought. It's a mental image. It's maybe a, a feeling of an urge or a physical sensation. It's just something that we experienced. But our brain then overlays that with some type of meaning. It says what, what this is or why you're having it or what it says about you or your actions or your future or your place in the world or your character. And, and based on a lot of different things, it will do that. But it provides this meaning and it tells you this story about you. Now, when it comes to things like this, we don't really like the outcome of that story. So maybe it makes us that gives us that anxiety, that nervousness. So you know, you and I are going to try to not feel anxiety. Generally speaking, anxiety feels bad. So we would rather feel good than bad, right? So we're going to do something to try to eliminate that feeling, get back to a sense of peace or confidence or comfort, um, or we try to do something that's that's going to kind of answer that feared story question and maybe uh, I 
seemingly make sure that that thing is never going to happen. So that's where the compulsions come in. A compulsion is anything that we do to try to eliminate, neutralize, undo that feeling or make sure that that story is never going to happen and that you're safe and comfortable. And that can happen through a lot of different ways, these compulsions. Compulsions can be done as rituals. They can be done as, uh, uh, it can be done as a ritual, or it can, be, excuse me, it can be done as compulsive avoidances. It can be done as reassurance seeking. It can be done as neutralization behaviors or thoughts, by the way. So some of the compulsions are both going to be thought-based and action kind of externally based. Um, Sometimes you'll hear that as overt compulsion versus covert compulsion. Covert meaning stuff that's just internally. Uh, that can be physical checking, uh, you know, checking one's body to see, you know, were you feeling particularly violent? And we'll talk about this in the compulsion section uh, later on. But once we do that compulsion, it gives us relief. We feel good again. We feel confident. We feel comfortable. Here's the problem with compulsions. They kind of work. They kind of work in the sense that they give us that momentary, that momentary sense of peace. But while they give us that relief, they also give us reinforcement. They reinforce and make stronger the presence of the original thought. Because the original thought was neutral. But we, we, we felt nervous by it. And there are a lot of brain structures that will contribute to all of this. But we felt all of this, and then we did something to take away that pain. Now, our brain then learned, oh, this is how I deal with this thought. When this random stinking thought showed up, this is what we're supposed to do with it. And I know I'm supposed to do this. I'm speaking from the brain's perspective. I know I'm supposed to do this because Jeff, Sarah, um, whoever, whoever you are out there did this. And I felt better. I felt good again. I felt comfortable. So great. Now, every time this thought comes up, I'll do that. And by the way, gosh, he or she did a whole bunch of stuff to make sure that this wasn't going to happen. So this thought must be important. Well, uh, we better watch out for this. We better watch out for that potential danger again. So let's think about this more. Be aware of it more. Be on the, uh, on the lookout for it more. You kind of see where this can start to, to, to snowball. And it, in fact, does snowball. So what we're trying to do in treatment ultimately is, well, we need to remember that, that you and I can't control the thoughts that we have. We just can't, right? Um, try. I'm sure you've tried and it has not worked. So we can't control the thoughts. We can't control the feelings that we have. Sometimes we just feel happy, sad, mad, feel all sorts of things. But we can control what we do. That's the one thing that you and I can do. And the compulsion is the thing that we are going to do. We can't control the thought, the feeling, the obsession, or the anxiety, but we can control our, whether or not we're going to do our compulsion. So we're trying to take that, we're going to pull that out as much as we possibly can in order to not reinforce the fear. Now, the problem is that we're stuck with a thought and a feeling. And our job then is to learn to tolerate that and to learn that that's okay, that we can have thoughts and feelings and that's fine, that they're generally speaking not dangerous. They're generally speaking we're not going to do anything about them. I say generally because I can't predict every situation and ultimately we're accepting the uncertainty over the outcome. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're learning that we can handle uncertainty about the future, about what may happen, what could happen, and gaining confidence through that, that generally speaking, Life kind of is okay. 
So the catastrophic terribleness that we fear oftentimes is going to happen. Let's jump into this with a little bit more detail. Let's talk about some of the common triggers for harm OCD. Now, again, none of this is going to be exhaustive. There might be something that you are experiencing that I'm not going to mention here. And it doesn't mean that you don't have it. It doesn't mean that it's. Uh, uh, it doesn't mean that you're worse off than everybody else. It just means that I can't list everything. And remember that our, our brain is, or our fear is only limited by our human imagination. And man, we can imagine a lot of things. We can fear a lot of things and experience a lot of things. And our brain can grab onto that and develop an obsession about that. So what I'm going to talk about are, are there in terms of triggers. These are just things that we can experience that might bring on that obsession. So there are external things and internal things. Some external things might be being around knives. And similarly, kind of the act, the act of cooking can bring around um, some some triggers for a lot of people, right? Um, driving a car can can be a trigger for for anxiety, can be a trigger for an obsession. Uh, walking with someone on the street, upstairs, downstairs, walking some with someone near windows, being around guns, holding pillows, even um, being around anybody in a vulnerable position, maybe a one on one thing, and similarly being uh, uh, being around weaker people as a larger person. Person, right now those are just things that kind of out of our out of our control seemingly right there are just some people who are larger some people who are smaller but simply those experiences can bring on this obsession but all those things are neutral unto themselves similarly internally we can have triggers there's going to be thoughts of a violent nature just random thoughts we can have we can imagine hurting or be uh, excuse me imagine others being hurt in various ways that can be a trigger um, there can be this internal sense that they've done something bad uh, that then feels real so that we'll talk about that a little bit further on but those can then bring on this obsession, and that's that feared story, right? So kind of broadly speaking, some common stories that people will have are, what if I'm a violent person? Well, you know, what if? Well, if then, right? If I'm a violent person, then I harm people, right? I do bad things, or quote, bad things, right? You know what I'm saying. So another one, um, what if I want to hurt people? Well, if I want to hurt people, ugh. I must be a dangerous, horrible person. I'm, I, if I want to harm people, well, I probably will harm people. I could harm people. Ugh, I don't like that story. What do I do to make sure that I don't do that stuff? Right? To keep on going, what if I'm, uh, what if I'm uncontrollable or lose control and hurt people? What if I inadvertently harm someone or I'm responsible for harming someone through my action or inaction? What if I'm lying to myself about my true nature and the intrusive thoughts that I'm getting actually mean that I'm this just violent monster? And kind of more specifically, I've, I've worked with folks who just have this thought of, what if I run somebody over? What if I poison somebody? What if I neglect? Uh, what if I'm neglectful, leading to harm of other people? What if I stab someone? What if I smother my child? What if I burn down my house? What if I throw acid in somebody's face? What if I commit a school shooting? All these things—they're just these feared stories. Oh no! If this, then that. What if? These are all invitations into fantasy land, but they're stories, right? They're stories that, if they were true, would be awful. But it doesn't mean they're happening. It just means they're, they're kind of thoughts. All right. 
So with that story happening, yeah, it can kind of bring on that anxiety. And then to try to get rid of that, some of the common compulsions that people will do, um, they might hide dangerous objects. They might avoid using perceived dangerous items, such as knives, hammers, things like that. Avoid being near someone when they have a perceived dangerous item. Right, kind of like maybe maybe cooking or something like that. Um, avoid being around kind of a weaker, vulnerable person. I kind of referenced that earlier. Um, another common one: mentally reviewing one's actions to ensure that they didn't do something harmful, or that they effectively prevented something bad from happening. Another is reviewing their intentions and motivations around behaviors to ensure that none of them were, were violent, malicious, or none of them had any violent or malicious intent. Right? Some people will ask others whether they've harmed someone and hurt their feelings or otherwise did anything wrong. Uh, I know some folks will check the news, check news feeds, watch the news, uh, actually go, go to the extent of, of getting and listening to police scanners to see if they could be responsible for any crime that they might have forgotten about. Um, something that some folks will do, they'll record oneself um, kind of entering or leaving buildings or entering and leaving offices and then reviewing later just to you know, make sure that they didn't do anything horrible and violent. Again, all of those things are just to ensure, no, I'm not this violent person or no, I didn't do anything bad. Oh, good. I watched that video. I didn't kill anybody. Sweet. But what about next time? What about the next time I do this? Go in and out of a building, go to see this, go to meet with my, 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 my boss. <sighs> well, maybe that time I do it. So, you know what? Last time I recorded myself, I, I found that I didn't do it. So I'm just going to record myself again, you know, better safe than sorry. So I, I'm, I'm going to go and do this. You can see how people can easily talk themselves into it, right? You know what? We were cooking with my family. And uh, I had my knife in my hand, and I had my thought of, oh, I could just, I could just stab someone right now. <gasps> well, wouldn't that be awful? I did that. So, you know, I'm just going to put the knife down. I'm going to find an excuse to leave. Oh, my stomach hurts, or oh, I have homework to do. So, I'm just going to leave. Um, and afterward, my family was safe. Great. Man, oh, man. I'm glad I put that knife down and got the heck out of that situation because my whole family didn't, didn't die because of me. Wonderful. I better do that again. I kept them safe. I did the right thing. You see where this is going, right? The process of giving into these compulsions, yes, is temporary sense of relief, but it also can build and build and build and start to have a tremendous impact on someone's life. In the long run, it can cause severe depression to an individual. I mean, think about have, having spending a long time just kind of uh, feeling responsible for others and making sure that everything's going to be okay and marinating in this steady stream of thoughts that you're this horrible person. You can see where that would lead someone to feeling incredibly depressed. Avoiding others for so long reduces potential positive interaction and healthy bonds, and it prevents the person from actually discovering that nothing bad happens, right? Some of the other impacts, it can harm families and relationships due to avoiding participation in family responsibilities like cooking and cleaning and caring for children. Checking and reassurance behaviors can also just simply become annoying to loved ones and can, can, can cause or, or, or influence that rift between family members. 
Another way that this uh, these compulsions can impact folks is that uh, it can prevent them from completing their work simply by you know all the checking behaviors, the reassurance seeking or avoiding. Um, for some people, it can even lead to them being fired for being unwilling to participate in essential parts of their job that that person may view as dangerous, uh, or, or that potentially could you know potentially could cause harm to other people. So they are going to hold back. On doing those things. But unfortunately, that's then seen as, you know, it can be seen by their bosses as neglectful or incompetent. So there, there are a lot of unseen impacts that that these that giving into compulsions will do. Oftentimes, people will kind of hold their stuff together, kind of hope for the best with these thoughts. And sometimes will talk themselves out of seeking treatment even well after some of the, the, the negative impacts have been seen. Some people will prevent talking to just their closest loved ones, their doctor, their psychiatrist. Um, sharing these thoughts can feel really, really scary to share that, hey, I'm having these violent thoughts. Unfortunately, sometimes when we share these thoughts, very well-meaning people may hear it and may misunderstand what's happening, may misunderstand what OCD actually is. And sometimes when people hear they're having they're having violent thoughts, some people will inappropriately hear this person is violent or this person will follow through on them, not taking into account the reality that everybody has violent thoughts. But generally speaking, not yet generally speaking, every person I've seen with with harm OCD, when I ask them about these violent thoughts, they say, they terrify me. They're awful. I hate them. I want to get rid of them. I would never do these things. And they say them with such force and such passion. They, genu they genuinely don't want these. And that's one of the markers of it being OCD versus someone who actually would want to harm someone. Now, that statement I know someone might ruminate on as a comparison. That's that internal compulsion, that, that covert compulsion to say, okay, when I say them, does that mean that I'm, do, do I feel that remorse or that fear or that sadness? Or do I not? There's going to be an endless loop that someone might go through to try to confirm that they feel one thing and don't feel another. Now, my encouragement to you would be, don't jump into that. Don't jump into that, uh, that process. It's, it's, a, it's a losing battle. And, and we'll talk shortly here about how we can accept uncertainty and kind of leave that rumination to the side. Before we get into the treatment section, I want to encourage folks that if they are having some of these thoughts, to take the risk and talk about them with a psychiatrist, or if you're listening to this... You might be gravitating more towards the idea that it might be harm OCD. I'd encourage you to talk with a OCD specialist about these thoughts. They'd be able to appropriately help you discern whether or not these are harm OCD thoughts or whether or not these are genuine violent thoughts. But I'd encourage you ultimately to take the risk to share these with somebody, particularly because the reason that you're listening to this episode is because these thoughts have been terrifying to you. They've been overwhelming. They might have caused some, some problems in your life, your work, your relationships, your, your school, your, your schoolwork, rather. And you're, you're tired of it. So take the risk to share these with somebody, and hopefully they'll be able to point you in the right direction and start getting the treatment that, that, that you need. 
and there are going to be plenty of resources out there. If you go to fearcastpodcast.com, you can go to the Get Help link, and there's going to be some links there to various organizations that may be able to help you out um, as uh, or, or, or help you out get connected with a therapist who can best do that type of assessment. All right, so now that we've talked about what harm OCD is, let's talk about what treatment is. That's why you're listening to this, to try to figure out what in the heck we can do about these thoughts and these fears. So the three things that, uh, that I will describe on, how to, on what to do is going to be cognitive behavioral therapy, so CBT, exposure and response prevention, and some mindfulness-based techniques. These three techniques, in addition to medication, have been described as the golden standard for treatment for OCD. And, uh, and, and these, just, these techniques, historically speaking, work. I've seen them work if you work them and work on trying to implement those things I- in your life. So the first thing is CBT. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a, is a, uh, a therapeutic modality. So it's just kind of a way of doing therapy that looks at two things, your thoughts and your behaviors. Thoughts or cognitive behavioral. So how your thoughts influence your behaviors. And you can see how they they do influence one another. I mean, from the thoughts that we have and how we interpret the world around us, it's going to certainly impact what we do. I'll give you an example is that if you think that snakes and spiders are dangerous, and if you think about snakes and spiders and the story that goes through your mind is they're going to bite and kill you or bite and kill someone you love, you're going to say, yeah, to heck with snakes and spiders. I don't want my friends or myself to die. So I'm going to kill as many snakes and spiders as I can find. If I see one, boom, smash, it's dead. Because it's dangerous to you in your mind. Now, If we start to challenge that story in mind, the cognition, the story about the snakes and spiders being dangerous, maybe say, all right, some snakes and spiders are dangerous, but a lot of them are not. Now, additionally, maybe we can learn to identify which ones are safe and which ones are dangerous. Maybe even with the safe and dangerous ones, we can also learn different ways that we can interact with them to be safer around them. Now, if we can expand the way that we think about snakes and spiders, instead of it just being this singular snakes and spiders are dangerous and bad and kill them thought, maybe we can also think about them as some are dangerous, some are safe. Now, some are, even if they're dangerous, we can interact with them in a different way, in a safer sort of way. Notice that already there's, a, there's more of a gradient in between safe and dangerous. There's kind of this middle ground of there is a safer way to interact with them. Now, that's going to change our behaviors, because if not all snakes and, snakes and spiders are dangerous, then it doesn't mean that the, the moment we're around them, we need to run. We might be willing, then, to not run immediately. Maybe to stay where we are. Maybe to get closer. Maybe the, to realize that we don't have to run at all. It's just a, it's a innocuous animal. So, that's what we're trying to do with these thoughts is to, is through cognitive behavioral therapy, challenge our thinking and see how that can then influence our behaviors. If we're willing to think differently about them, maybe we're willing to do something differently about them too. So, one of the ways that we do that first is through something called cognitive restructuring. And the goal of cognitive restructuring is, is just as I mentioned, to think differently about our thoughts in order to act differently about them. So, one of my favorite ways to think about this as well is through skydiving. So, I've never gone skydiving. I might in the future. I don't like heights, but that's for a phobia conversation. Um, so, 
with a so with skydiving, there's this whole class that you do beforehand. The whole class is going to talk about uh, the safety, uh, the safety and mechanics of skydiving. You're going to learn about the equipment. You're going to learn about uh, the act, the, the actions of it. You're going to learn about when to pull the cord, why you strap yourself to somebody else, how you're going to jump, how you're going to land, all this stuff to think about. You know, ultimately how this is safe. And then they're also going to, and they're also going to talk about the statistics of of how safe it is, how many people, how many thousands and thousands and thousands of people jump, but also who also gets hurt and how they get hurt and why they get hurt, right? So ultimately, what they're doing is they're trying to talk about how ultimately skydiving is safe, right? How you can do it in a safe way, and then they're going to have you sign a little piece of paper that says, "I could go splat," and then. They're going to put you on a plane. They're going to take you way up in the air, and then you need to decide, am I willing to jump out of this plane, knowing all this stuff that we talked about in the class, that it's unlikely that I'm going to go splat, that uh, here's a safe way to do it. The person that's strapped to me has done this a bajillion times, and they have not gone splat, so it's unlikely I'm going to go splat, and then jump out of the plane and see whether or not you go splat, right? So the whole thing is to is to expand the way that you're thinking about it and to increase that gray area between black and white, safe and dangerous. Now, the cognitive restructuring piece is kind of controversial. It can be controversial to some in the treatment community. Some will say it is reassurance-seeking. Some will say that it, uh, it undermines the surprise element of the exposure. And I suppose all of this is valid criticism, and it's, it's part of the, the expanding uh, uh, view of treatment through research. But I still think this step can be important for a lot of different things. Now, remember, um, I, I, I said at the very beginning of, of the podcast, violent thoughts are typical. We have them. I have them. You have them. Right? To a certain degree, I'm already doing cognitive restructuring with that. I'm expanding that even a little bit. Is it reassuring? Yes, it might be. But it's very different than saying the second someone comes in to immediately rush into exposure and response prevention. So uh, I'm going to provide a a little bit of reassurances on the top end of things. But that being said, one of the main differences between an OCD therapist and the average therapist, meaning a a non-initiated OCD therapist sort of thing, is the non-OCD therapist is going to spend a lot of time giving reassurances. You're going to be okay. You're going to you're going to be fine. Nothing bad's going to happen. You'll be great. And it doesn't take into account the uncertainty component. The reality is that we don't know for sure. I don't know if that person's going to go splat. But it's also unfair and I think mean of someone to just jump into their first session and say, "Hey Kevin, I have these violent thoughts." And for me to do an Olympic level exposure for them and say, "Yeah, you're a violent person that should be locked up forever because you're a dangerous human." That isn't very compassionate and also doesn't really take into account the entire person, what thoughts are, etc., etc. Now, I'm sidetracking myself. Let's get on to other ways that we can challenge these thoughts. So, I want to go through just a couple of cognitive distortions, meaning that um, sometimes our think about cognitive distortions as screwed up thinking. 
It's just the way that our brain sometimes skews the world around us and, and, and screws things up for us. It, it, it creates this, uh, it creates a, a false view of the world around us. And then from that, our behaviors will furthermore be irrational or be um, skewed in an inappropriate way. So the three I'm going to go over are hyper-responsibility, catastrophic thinking, and magnifying. So with hyper-responsibility, this is a cognitive distortion that that basically says someone takes the responsibility for everybody else's health and safety. Now, we might say it's a good thing to do that, but hyper-responsibility is going above and beyond and saying, I am the one that is in control and I can ensure that somebody's safe. And not only that, I should, I ought to. It is my responsibility to do so. Unfortunately, what this does is it leads to hypervigilance. It can lead to avoidance. It can lead to checking and checking in with other people. It can lead to mental review. And this is all used to justify the cycle when nothing bad happens, or or uh, or if something bad happens later on, you might they they say, "Gosh, if I had just said something, nothing bad would have happened." Or the hyper responsibility jumps in and says, "You know, I could have done something if dot 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 if I'd just done these things, right?" We need to remember that we aren't responsible for everybody, and furthermore, we can't control other people, right? We aren't responsible for other people's, we, we can't ensure factually, fully, the responsibility and say, or the, the, the health and safety of everybody else. And to, to do that is this hero complex that ultimately just leads us feeling exhausted. The next is catastrophic thinking. What this is, this is a distortion that says that, every, that, that something bad might happen, but it's not just something bad could happen. The worst case scenario is going to happen. And not only could happen, but will happen. So catastrophic thinking would go like this. Let's say I'm holding a knife. Well, let's say something bad happens holding the knife. Well, I could, you know, I, I could maybe cut myself with it. I could wield it wrong and maybe cut somebody else, you know, in a superficial way. Also, by the way, nothing could happen. I could hold a knife and absolutely nothing could happen. But let's be honest, that's, what not, that's not what your anxiety is thinking of. Catastrophic thinking is I'm going to hold this knife and I'm going to lose it, and I'm going to kill everybody in the room in horrific, terrible, bloody ways. Another one might be the thought that I'm, go that I'm going crazy, and I'm, that's going to lead to killing people. That's catastrophic. I'm going to go crazy, lose my mind, have a break with reality, kill everybody around me. Now, let's say you do go crazy. Well, you could also be caught in giving the appropriate treatment, right? You could also not, get, you could also not be going crazy. But again, your brain's not worried about that. It says, here's the thing that could happen, and here's the worst thing that's going to happen. We need to challenge that thought and to illustrate that perhaps the worst case scenario is unlikely to happen. And it's unlikely to happen. It's possible. It's unlikely to happen in the way that your brain is thinking of. So lastly, I want to talk about magnifying. Magnifying is, is taking a thought. It's similar to the other ones. It's taking a thought and hyper-focusing on this one and, and taking this one possibility and, it, and just making the importance of it so much bigger than everything else. So much bigger that it overshadows other things that may actually be more likely to happen. So think about it as magnifying takes possible and turns it into probable. Now, those things are not the same. Something that could be possible is, is, doesn't then mean it's likely to happen. It just means that it's possible. It's out there, right? I'm I, I, it's possible that I could be hit by an asteroid. But 
so are you. But you're not worried about that, right? It's one of those existential threats. I could catch some incredibly rare disease. It's possible, but it's unlikely. The distortion of magnifying takes this horrible worst-case scenario that your brain is thinking of and magnifies it to the point of it's probable that it's going to happen. It's going to happen to you. Cognitive restructuring helps you to challenge the legitimacy of that thought and maybe think about it in a more accurate way. Not a happy-go-lucky, everything's fine sort of way, but to say, you know, this is unlikely. And remember, there are a bajillion things that you that, that could happen to you, but you ultimately are not worried about. You're just living your life. So moving on to mindfulness. Mindfulness is going to be another way that you can work towards dealing with and making space for these thoughts without giving into compulsive behaviors. Now, as I mentioned before, if we're pulling out the compulsions, that means we're stuck with the thought and the feeling, right? Mindfulness really helps you to develop a new way to look at those thoughts and feelings. And rather than viewing them as these dangerous, awful things that, uh, that need to be avoided, instead, we can take the perspective of just noticing what they look like, how they feel, what they sound like, and, and being accepting of them as they are in the moment. And what they are in that moment are thoughts and feelings. That's it, in that moment. Now again, I'll be guiding you on a, on a meditation a little bit later, um, but, uh, I, but I want you to think about what, what mindfulness ultimately is, is just non-judgmentally acknowledging everything that's happening right now. And the key of that is non-judgmentally. We're being judgmental about a thought when we're doing a compulsion, avoiding, ruminating, or trying to otherwise prove that we're okay, because we're saying this thought is dangerous, therefore we need to do something about it. This thought could lead to something bad, so I need to go do something about it. I shouldn't have this, so I need to do something about it. Instead, we, we want to try to view them and sit with them in a non-judgmental way, but just saying, yeah, this thought is there. I don't have to like it. I don't have to love it. But I don't want to judge myself or the thought or my brain for it being there. One of the ways that we can do that is what ACT calls, so acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT calls the struggle switch. And this is just one small component of mindfulness through the, the lens of acceptance and commitment therapy. So in a nutshell, acceptance and commitment therapy is a mindfulness-based approach that looks at, no surprise, acceptance and commitment. So accepting our experiences, our thoughts, our feelings, just the stuff that we are, we are going through as, as it is, as it presents itself in a non-judgmental fashion. But then taking committed steps towards values, towards the things that we find important to us and are meaningful to us. So that can look like is that we can have an unwanted thought pop in mind and, and it can be uncomfortable. But we want to just simply let it be there in a naturally uncomfortable way, not then amplifying it by adding our own struggle and fighting with it. Some thoughts are just uncomfortable, and there's nothing that we're going to be able to say that's going to, un that's going to comfortableize that thought. We can just let that be there and just go, yeah, man, this is uncomfortable, and I'm going to kind of ride this wave. It's going to go up, and it's going to feel uncomfortable, but it's going to go down. But, in but instead of doing anything about this in a compulsive manner, I'm going to redirect my efforts towards something else, or I'm going, to, I'm going to interact with that thought or that feeling in a more meaningful way, which may be inaction, which will likely be inaction, especially when it comes to compulsions. So with the struggle switch, you can imagine an on or off switch. 
on is we're, we're struggling with the thought. We're fighting with it. We're trying to suppress it. We're trying to destroy it. We're trying to prove that it's false. We've all done this. And we get into this rigmarole, this roundabout in our head of, of evidence and proving and litigation, and it's exhausting. And you've done it a, bil a billion times, and you've gotten all to the same place. What the struggle switch is is that it says, we're going to just turn that off. We're going to turn off the fight and it's just going to be there. It's not going to, we're not going to try to change it. It's just going to be present. Now, what that does is, kind of in quotes, it puts you at, at risk in face of, or at the, at the at-risk position to your fear, so that we're accepting the uncertainty about what that means, about what that thought means, or what that thought says about us or our future. It seems like when we're not doing our fighting against it, our proving compulsions, we then don't know what's going to happen if we don't try to work to exert control over it through that struggle. What we're going to then do is to let the future be the future. We're going to let it play out. And that feels risky. That sounds risky and dangerous, right? But in the course of doing that, we see, how it's, we see what happens at the end of it. Historically speaking, I'm willing to bet nothing has happened. When you've held that knife and you notice that you're having those violent thoughts, those scary thoughts and those feelings, and maybe that sensation in your hand, it feels like, oh, I need to get rid of all that because that's a sign that I could do it. That's a sign that I might do it. I will do it. When we turn the struggle switch off, we go, yeah, I've got this thought in my head. Ooh, it's not my favorite, but it is there. It's a thought. What else do I feel physically? Well, I've got this tingling in my hand. My chest is tight. Yeah, I'm not going to try to change it because I can't. When we fight against these thoughts and our struggle switches up, we, we, just, we, we beat our head against the wall to try to change something that we can't turn off. We can't change it. If you could make yourself feel something, wouldn't you already do it? If you could just make yourself feel happy and peaceful and energetic and faithful, or uh, uh, love towards somebody else, you would have done it already. But we can't. We feel all these things. And they come up, and they come down, and they go in, and they go out. And that's okay. Our job with the struggle switch is to take it as it is in a non-judgmental way. I'm feeling A, or I'm feeling B, and I'm observing that I'm feeling A or B, rather than A is good, B is bad. Oh no, I'm feeling B? Fight! get back to A as fast as we can. We'll get back to A. We always have. So we let go of that fight and we redirect our energies towards the things that we care about more, whatever that thing is. So that's just one example of how we can deal with these thoughts through through mindfulness. And mindfulness is, is a whole rabbit hole unto itself. Um, but rather than getting into it right now, let's just briefly talk about ERP. And then I want to jump into the two exposure examples that I have. And... Um, and then we'll wrap things up. So ERP is short for Exposure and Response Prevention. Now, you might hear this as Exposure and Ritual Prevention as well. Um, it's all kind of the same stuff. What ERP is, is progressively, is, is a process of helping you progressively face your fear without compulsion. It is getting closer and closer to the thing that you are most terrified of while pulling back on anything that would undo or avoid or neutralize 
the, the outcome. So the exposure to fear, the response typically has been compulsion or avoidance, right? We're preventing that outcome. To face one's fear can be done in a, pro, in a slow and progressive manner. It can be done out of order. Um, but it's really going to depend on, it, it, it depends on the individual, depends on the therapist that you're working with. Um, but generally speaking, what we're going to start with is building a hierarchy, basically a big old giant list of all the things that make you feel afraid or that you fear. And that can be just the idea of snakes. It can be spiders. It can be knives. It can be being near knives. It can be other violent at, uh, items or actions or places. We're going to put all that into a list. And then generally speaking, kind of an older school method of doing it, but it's also tried and true, is to then rate each of those on a scale of one to 10 or, or zero to 100, depending on who you talk to. And then we're going to put those in order from easiest to hardest. And then we're going to start with the easiest stuff and start facing it. And once the anxiety or the discomfort of that comes down by at least half, we'll move on to the next one and move on to the next one, the next one, and so on until sooner or later, you're at the top of your list and doing the thing that you fear the most, all while resisting compulsive behaviors and feeling that, yeah, that situation is going to make you feel super duper uncomfortable and your body and your brain acclimate your attention shifts and moves on to somebody else or something else. And through that experience, we learn, oh, I was able to face that. I was able to face that or do that or hold that or be there. And nothing bad happened. And I survived it. And I didn't kill anybody. And I didn't hurt myself. Weird. Crazy. Awesome. Fun. Some people describe through doing exposures that they get this high afterwards. And they do this thing and they have all this adrenaline going through their system and it's terrifying. And they're going to this place that they never thought they'd be able to go to and hold that thing or be in that place. And they are doing it and nothing bad's happening. And they got through the other end. How exhilarating to see that your biggest fear didn't happen. And that's what happens through, this, through exposures is we can see that we are able to do it. So, so just to give you an idea, right? So let's say it's, you know, it's, it's just simply harming somebody, stabbing someone, right? So this can happen in a progressive manner. Some people, again, will go out of order, and there's a lot of good reasons to go out of order because, well, the best reason is your anxiety doesn't care about the progressive nature of it. It just gets triggered by stuff. You and I just get triggered by things. So... Going out of order helps you to realize that you can have this intermittent like trigger schedule, right? That some days are totally easy. You see no triggers. Great. Some days you see all of them all at once. It's not like at the beginning of the month, the universe only gives us low level things. And at the end of the month, we get our Olympic level big exposures, right? It's a mixture. So with, so with a progressive uh, example, I'll just give you an example of this is um, the first thing we're going to do, let's say it's, it's stabbing somebody, right? That's, the, that's the, the, the big, terrible, horrible fear. Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to think of a knife. Just have that image in mind. Tolerate that thought being there. We're not going to fight against it. It's just going to be there. We're going to let it float. And realize that we could have that thought and not kill anybody. And have that thought and survive having that thought. And we can be present and continue to live our life and have that thought in mind. Once we've gotten used to that, we're going to move on to looking at a picture of a knife. Just a picture, an image, maybe even start with a cartoon image, and then move on. And then we're going to draw it ourselves. And then we might have, we might have a plastic knife in the room, like a basic 
you know, picnic pal- plastic knife. They seem less dangerous, but, you know, you can hurt someone with that. And we're going to tolerate that. And then we're going to move on to a scarier knife. And we're going to have it at the opposite end of the room. We're just going to be in the presence of that knife across the room and kind of living with the presence of it for the time that we're there and realizing that we can survive that experience. And then we're going to progressively move that knife closer and closer to us. And then we're going to hold the knife, maybe even hold the knife by ourselves. Then we're going to hold the knife next to somebody. And they're going to hold that knife kind of across the room, but pointed at somebody and then progressively get closer to that person. And they're going to hold it on their skin. Then eventually we're going to hold it to their neck. And I've done these exposures. I have this big big, giant work knife. I have it on my desk all the time. At some point with some folks, I'll say, all right, great. Now, once we get to that point, take the knife, hold it to my neck, and we're just going to talk about the weather, talk about movies, talk about their favorite music, talk about what they did over the weekend. And their fear might be, gosh, this is a dangerous position. I could harm Kevin. And they could. They, they're the one with the knife to my neck um, in killing position. And then they find that they're able to do that and hold it there and realize that they don't kill me. And I've yet to be killed by doing this exposures, and I've done this a lot. And it really sends the message, wow, the thing that I was most afraid of, that my brain said was a certainty was going to happen, actually didn't happen. A lot of people fall victims to something called thought-action fusion, and that can be a, an obstacle to treatment. Thought-action fusion essentially is equating the thought with the action, and sometimes either it can happen in two different ways. Some people will believe that the thought will thought will if we have the thought, it increases the likelihood of the action later on, or we feel it and we feel the guilt and the and the pressure and the pain of it. Uh, of the thought or with the thought as if we'd actually done the action. They're two different things. Having a thought does not increase the, the likelihood of something happening in the future. If that was the case, everybody, that simply having the thought meant that it's going to increase an, uh, an outcome in the future, then I would like everybody out there to think Kevin Foss is going to win the lottery. It's not going to happen, Right. You could think it all you want, but it's certainly not going to help me to win the lottery, unfortunately, right? Similarly, we can't manifest something. We can't just think something into existence. I can't think of a cheeseburger right now, um, even though that would be delicious, or ribs or chicken wings would be delightful too. But I can't think about it and make it happen. I'm sorry, all you secret followers out there. Um, It is not going to happen. So, Thoughts are not the same as actions. And it can be the obstacle in the sense that if you think that exposing yourself to this thought will increase its likelihood of happening, then we're going to talk ourselves out of doing the exposures. It's not how that works in reality, though. So, as I gave you the example earlier of of the knife, other things that we can do, we can read stories about serial killers. We can look at crime scene photos. Other exposures are watching hit-and-run videos. We can watch car accidents or other violent scenes in just regular old movies. We can watch movies about murders. Like, remember the show Dexter, if you've ever seen that show? That's a great exposure show. It's a show about someone who kills people. Some of that fear, though, is, oh my gosh, if I watch this, I'm going to learn how to do it. If I watch this, it must mean, if I watch this and kind of get, a, get some enjoyment out of it, it must mean that I'm a violent person. See how those connections are, right? Well, we challenge those thoughts and also realize that we can exist with that thought at the same time without, without giving into or fighting with or uh, I, I'm trying to undermine that thought itself. So, 
those are what we just described are called in vivo exposures. We can also do something called scripting, which is otherwise known as imaginal exposures or cognitive exposures. What this is, is it's writing a story about the worst case scenario actually happening to you. And that we write out that story, it can be pretty quick and pretty easy to read. And I'll give you an example later on in, in this episode. And we want to then read it and just let, let us feel anxious. Right back to that acceptance piece. It's just going to be there. This story makes me feel anxious. As we continue to reread it and let that thought be there, our brain learns that this topic, this subject is actually not dangerous unto itself. And I, and more importantly, I don't need to do a compulsion. I don't need to do anything about this story. It's a story. It's a story maybe I don't like, but I don't need to do anything out of the ordinary to survive this and to keep moving forward in my life. Okay, so that's what harm OCD is. That is what, that, that, uh, so I, we've just gone over a brief description over what, uh, uh, what the disorder is, some common ways that it manifests itself, and also generally speaking, some ways that we try to work towards tolerating this thought and overcoming it and realizing that, that this thought can just simply be there. It can, be t- it can be in our experience, in our existence, in our moment, as we continue to go do everything else. You can sit here and listen to my voice while you think about a beach somewhere. You might say, well, that's totally fine because it's not dangerous. I suppose you're right. But thinking about a beach as you're listening to me does not mean that you're there, does not mean that you're going there, does not mean that you should be there, does not mean that you're going to eventually be at a beach. It just means you're having a thought about a beach and listening to me. That's what we're trying to do with these thoughts. This violent thought comes in, great. I can have a violent thought while I hang out with my spouse, while I go to work, while I'm in class, while I am working, working right next to somebody, while I'm cooking. And they can just be there, those thoughts. So, so I'm now going to move into doing or giving examples of both of these exposures. The first is going to be a guided meditation. Now, please remember, both of these are just for educational purposes only and are meant to be used as examples of what exposures could look like under the care of a therapist. So for this first meditation, I'm going to, I'm going to read through. Please remember that when attempting to follow through on this, if you attempt to go through this, recognize that you are accepting the risks involved with this and that you're doing them under your own volition. Feel free to stop whenever you'd like in this or do not listen entirely. It should only be done if you're ready for them. And if you're triggered again, you can stop. And then you should listen to them with your therapist. All right, so without any uh, further warnings... Let's begin. All right, first, before we begin, find a comfortable place to sit. If you're listening to this while driving or while anywhere else, press pause and resume later when you're at a comfortable private place. Now, focus on your breath. Turn your attention towards the sensations of the breath going in and out. 
Take three slow, steady breaths in and out. While you've typically tried to avoid thinking about these thoughts, I want you to practice turning your attention toward them. When your brain gets scared, overwhelmed, or bored, it will try to distract you with other thoughts. That's okay. Let those thoughts come in, float for as long as they stay, and allow them to leave. Continually redirect your attention toward the guided meditation. Imagine a medium-level anxiety-provoking moment, one where you could potentially hurt someone. Start imagining the scene like a still image. Maybe even a still image that's across the room. Now, slowly bring that image closer to you. Closer. Closer. Now you're in it. But it is still. Now in this still image, look around. Notice the surroundings, the people, the colors. Now notice your feelings. Don't judge them. Don't try to push them away. Let them stay. Observe what they are. Care for their presence like you would a frightened child. Treat the feelings in yourself tenderly in this moment. Next, press play on the scene, but in slow motion. Notice how the scene progresses. What happens first? What did you notice change in the scene? What changed in your body? Now, that violent act that you've been afraid of starts to happen, again in slow motion. If your anxiety is spiking too high, press pause on the scene in your head. Practice observing and describing just like you did before. Then, when the anxiety has come down, press play again. The violent scene is still playing out, though, but progressively the violent act gets closer and closer and closer. Then it happens. Press pause. What do you see? Press pause in the image. What do you see? Describe it to yourself in objective terms. Describe it like you're telling me what's in your mind's eye. What do you feel in your body? Again, simply acknowledge that your body feels this way. And to no surprise. Of course you would feel this way, because your body is reacting to a frightening scene. But we are learning that that feeling is okay. This moment is okay. Now, 
Fast forward to a scene where the consequences to the previous scene have happened. Who's there? What's happening? What are they telling you? Imagine them saying that thing that you didn't want them to say. Rewind that little bit in your mind and play it again. One more time. Observe the look on their faces and pause it. Observe what that looks like for that moment. Now, as you're looking at them, notice your own feelings. Name the feelings that you're having. Is it sadness, guilt, fear, shame, dread, emptiness? Pause and hold with this feeling and take three more breaths with this feeling. Notice how the breath changes that feeling. Now, pause the scene again, like the picture at the beginning, and slowly begin to back out of the scene. Push the image further and further in your mind's eye until it is too far away to be seen. Now, refocus your attention again on your breath Take three easy breaths in and out. When you're ready, you can open your eyes. Okay. Now, what was that like? What did you notice? Now, you might have noticed anxiety higher in the beginning and less at the end. You might have noticed that your anxiety was just kind of high throughout the whole thing. Did you notice it was hard to focus on the images or the story? Were you doing internal compulsions the whole time? Were you telling yourself, oh, I know this isn't real or I would never do this? Now, if you're working on this with a therapist, you can expand on this. You can make this bigger. You can expand to different scenes. You can play out scenes even beyond the second one imaged or imagined. How does your life play out after this? What would have made it worse? The goal of this isn't just to imagine the worst because I want to torture you, but to imagine the scene that brings anxiety because one, you can, and two, because you're willing to go there and to have that thought. Anxiety, all that bad feeling that you had was just, it is just a, a bad feeling. It's an uncomfortable feeling. I don't want to say it's bad. It's just uncomfortable. And oftentimes we don't want it, but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be had. By increasing your willingness to have them, you take away the power and the influence of that feeling in your life to the point where that image and even that feeling can just simply be there without having to do anything about it and by then getting that back to your life. 
having that thought over and over and over again and practicing having it in a calm manner, in a way that just lets it be there, shows that this brain or shows that this thought isn't threatening, it's not dangerous, it's just a thought that can be there as you go and live your life. All right, so lastly, I'm going to get into a script. So this script I'm writing is focusing on suicide OCD or self-harm OCD. So as I mentioned earlier, a script is a cognitive exposure or an imaginal exposure in which someone writes about their worst fear actually happening. The goal is once they write this, then they reread and reread and reread that story over and over and over again until ultimately they're bored with it. Your job is to be bored with this thought, because if you're bored with it, who cares about it, right? That's the point. So that you can read it and have it in mind so many times that you just go, oh, this thing again? Who cares? Now, suicide OCD or self-harm OCD is just another sub-subtype of harm OCD, but the fear is, what if I harm myself in some sort of way? Now, this is a really delicate sort of thought uh, and a really delicate sort of subject I'm going to be talking about. A lot of people will have, a lot of people do have suicidal thoughts, and those thoughts ought to be evaluated and checked out and discussed with your healthcare provider, with your therapist, just to see whether or not uh, you're taking them seriously, whether or not that you are genuinely considering following through on them. However, when it comes to suicide OCD or self harm OCD, the person doesn't actually want to do it. In fact, the thoughts of self harm are terrifying, are uncomfortable. It's the last thing they want to do. They want to do everything opposite of that. They want to live, but they just keep being plagued by these thoughts of self-harm. Again, they don't want to do it. Just like all the other thoughts, and I know this can sound like a, it, this is going to be a weird story that I wrote, but the point is that these are stories in one's mind. If you don't want to do it, if you don't want to harm yourself, great. But we also need to tolerate that sometimes a thought is going to be there. But just because it's there does not mean that it has to be attended to. It does not mean that we need to change anything in our life other than observe the fact that it's there. Now, again, if you are having suicidal thoughts and you are taking them more seriously, making plans, are, 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 are practicing or taking steps towards it, please call a mental health provider, call 911, go to your nearest emergency room and have those thoughts evaluated. If you've already done that and you've had these thoughts and you've kind of been working on them, this is an example of what a, an exposure script could sound like. And you can work with your therapist to get to a, 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 a better version for you. Again, this is going to be your story, not just this one. I'm just com coming up with a, a generalized one. And uh, it may be triggering to some again. And again, that's the purpose of it, right? But again, if you're not ready for this, you can listen to this with your therapist or just simply don't listen at all. But it is up to you as we progress through this. But this is an example of what a script could sound like. I woke up again today, and hopefully I won't have that urge to kill myself again. Now I get out of bed, and I go to the kitchen, and I see the big kitchen knife just sitting on the counter again. Suddenly, I'm flooded with these overwhelming thoughts again. Do it, it says. Pick up the knife and kill yourself. End it. Ugh. I shake my head and remind myself that I'm not going to do it as I grab my toast and I go to work. While on my way, 
My hands feel the urge to turn my steering wheel into oncoming traffic. The pull is strong. I keep looking over at the oncoming traffic, then back to the road ahead, but keep feeling like something in me wants to kill myself on this road today. Ugh, my stomach is in knots, and I can hear my heart pounding in my ears. It's deafening. Somehow, I make it to work, but I don't know how much more of this I can take. All day, I constantly see objects and imagine how I can kill myself, and I can barely focus on my work. My coworker comes up to me and says, Hey, are you okay? You seem distracted. We're, we're totally killing it in this meeting, but you seem like you want to just jump out a window. I tell him I'm fine, and then I joke with him and say, uh, I'm feeling great. Uh, if we, uh, man, if we bombed that meeting, I was totally going to blow my brains out. Ugh. And then I go home. I have dinner. I get in bed. And while I'm in bed, I hear thoughts of, this is never going to end. Life's not worth living. And nothing matters. I go to sleep, hoping it all goes away. But somehow, I know I'll be thinking about this again tomorrow and for the rest of my life. So, what did you notice about that script? So, one of the things that I wrote in there is I, I included a bunch of very violent imagery that people just kind of use in everyday talk, right? We're killing it at this meeting, right? Oh, I was going to blow my brains out, right? These are kind of very violent imagery that people use on a regular basis that some folks with this type of obsession would be terrified to say as if it's a confession that they're going to do it or it's an insinuation that they would like to do it. So that's why I included it in this script. And you can also include things like that in your scripts. Specific phrases, specific ideas, specific actions, or uh, responses from other people that, w that play central roles in your obsession. So again, if I was to work with someone with this, is that they would have the script and they would read it and read it and read it. Um, a lot of literature will say, read it for an hour a day. That's an incredible amount of time. I usually would say, read it for half an hour a day. You could break it up into 15 minutes and 15 or 10, 10, 10, however you need to break it up. But to spend time with this, just marinating in your brain and to say, yep, boy, this thought sucks and I don't like it, but you know what, it's there and I'm going to have it as I go to work. Some people will take this and not only just sit and read it, but they'll record it like I'm recording it here and just play it in their in their headphones and, you know, go to the store, have this playing in their ears, go for a run, have this playing in their ears. And just as you do this, the first couple times you do it, your brain is going to be focused on it and terrified. But as you continue to do it, your brain gets bored with it. And you learn to let your brain float, your attention to just to meander and move around. Think about it as letting your mind wander. Now, when we're doing compulsions, we're not letting our mind wander. We are riveted to the idea and trying to eliminate it. When we let go of the thought and just let our mind wander, it will. It will eventually shift to other things and shift back to this and then go to work or relationships and then back to this story. And that's okay. We're learning that this story doesn't need our full attention and that we can continue to live our life with this thought uh, passively just living there from time to time. But again, with both of these examples, these are things that you can talk about with your therapist and with your clinician about, uh, about how to apply them to your life. And there's a lot of other techniques and tools that you can do, but this just kind of will give you an idea about what some treatment looks like, how you can interact with it, and how it can work for you to learn to tolerate the presence of these thoughts and to learn that you can survive the presence of them as you just live your life.
So again, I hope all of this was helpful. It will help give you the, the courage and confidence to step into treatment and to start getting some of the recovery that you're looking for. All right, everybody, thank you so much for making it through the Harm OCD episode. Oh, this was a long episode, and I appreciate everybody for spending the time to listen to it, even if you had to break it up, even if you just had to skip ahead and listen to this bit. Um, so if you have questions about this, and I'm hoping that if you do have questions about this, and uh, know that if you have questions, somebody else in the world does. So if you have a question and, and you feel confident or if you, you feel brave enough to send it to me, go over to fearcastpodcast.com, go to the submit a question link, and you can submit that question, and I will answer your very specific question about harm OCD, about how to handle it, what to do, what sort of techniques you might be able to think about, how to start challenging these thoughts. Um, and and I, I'd be happy to discuss it uh, if you if you feel so brave as to entrust, it, 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 to entrust me with it. Um, again, I thank everybody for all the questions that you've sent in in the past. And um, I know that this is just a, a subject that has been ignored on this podcast for a while, not because of uh, intentional action, but just simply because it's not a topic that we've covered a lot. So feel free to send in those questions. Feel free to send in your audio questions as well. Audio questions will get bumped to the top of the list in recording. So if you'd like a question answered sooner, sooner rather than later, go, uh, record it and then send me the file itself, or you can send me the shared Google Drive of it, and I will uh, upload it to a future episode. Please remember that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about treatment, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can uh, go to the Fight Health link and you can learn a little bit more about some resources that could be helpful in your own recovery so everybody again thank you all so much for listening and sticking it out in this episode and remember until next time take a risk challenge yourself and don't take your brain too seriously bye